Well, thank you, Christopher. And uh, thank you, Pro Tem Choir. I needed the carol sing this morning. Kind of revive my Christmas spirit. I kind of used it all up. <laughs> and maybe you did too. And, you, and I'm thrilled that you are here, even this very morning, given that we had a great Christmas Eve together and a great Christmas Day. And with all that we had going on here and then back at home. Now we are here again. And those great carols of uh, years gone by, and the newer ones too, like Jingle Bells with Christian Words. I think we should put that in a hymn book somewhere. Uh, Revives the Spirit. So let's bow our heads and talk to the Lord and ask him further to speak to us. Lord, it is great for us as we worship you in song and prayer and the hearing of your word. To know that you yourself are here as we celebrate your birthday and continue the celebration. It is with you in our presence. You are the host of the party. Without you, there is no party. With you, in a sense, Lord, no matter what's going on around us, there is always the joy of our relationship of your love in us and the great gift you have given us. So in that tone, Lord, please take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And then take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, we do have some good things coming up. And next, I just remind you again that next Sunday, January the 3rd, 10 o'clock here, we'll have one great service. So if you're used to the later service in the third service in Wilson Hall, or you're a regular 10 o'clock worshiper here, this church will be standing room only, as it was for the five o'clock Christmas Eve service. We had to bring in chairs at the back. It was absolutely stacked out, and it was a joy to behold. So I say to you that next Sunday will be the same as we install or invest or have this service of institution, three different words describing the same great act of Jared Ott, being installed, instituted as our senior pastor and rector. So I do encourage you to be there. This doesn't happen but once in the blue moon. And by God's grace, you'll be a part of a great celebration, both rejoicing in cheering Jared on, as well as each other as we head into the new year. There is a sense of anticlimax once you get beyond Christmas. Uh, you've had all the fun and the expectation. And if you've gone through New Year's as well, and it's now back to work, and you're kind of getting the bits and pieces, the shreds of your energy together to head out on Monday, 
To have a service like this on Sunday will be a great, great encouragement to all of us. And by the same token, when we come to the Magi, coming to worship Jesus, it's, 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 it's a similar scene. Uh, take a look, if you will, at verse 11. You'll find it on page 6. Because it's quite surprising. I don't know if you noted it as Christopher read. But on the, in verse 11 it says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And it does say house there. Not stable, not barn, no manger. It's because all the crowds that had poured into Bethlehem, with all the energy that was there, family reunions, people coming back, because the Caesar had called upon a census worldwide. He wanted to know the strength and wealth of his kingdom and, of course, all the taxpayers that needed to be registered. And so he called for a census. And given Israel and the way things worked in Israel, people went back to their family home, their family seat. And Bethlehem, since... Mary and Joseph were of the house of David, was where they made their way. And I just put this in parenthesis in passing. Isn't it great that getting Jesus from Nazareth, where he's in the womb, to Bethlehem, where he's to be born, because prophecy says he's to be born. That will come out in just a moment in the text. Caesar calls for a census so that Jesus, because who moves a highly pregnant woman on that kind of a journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem unless there's some urgent reason to do it? The urgent reason was to be obedient to Caesar, who was the potentate and the power. What he didn't know and the rest of the world didn't know was that he was subject to the power of God, moving Mary by that means to Bethlehem, where Micah chapter 5, verse 2, says the Messiah was to be born. That's how they got to be there. But the circumstances were high energy. No room for them at the inn. All the family reunions. All the space taken. Now it's several months later... They're all gone. Bethlehem is the little sleepy town. And Mary and Joseph are still there. And the baby Jesus. When there is a stirring. Because three differently dressed, clearly important visitors make their way into Bethlehem. They'd actually been to Jerusalem first seeking knowledge of where a king was to be born, following this star. A couple of interesting points since they came from Persia are these. And they're just sideline points that I mention by way of interest. That in the fourth century when they built a huge church over the birthplace of Jesus in Bethlehem, they painted on the wall and those large murals are still there, the three wise men. 
and their camels, dressed looking like Persians, not Israelis or Jewish people. So that when later, a couple of centuries later, the Persians advance, they destroy the Christian churches built in the 4th century. Just another piece of history. No church was built until the 4th century. People worshipped in homes. Christians were being persecuted. They had secret sign of the fish by which you could let somebody know you were a Christian and get into the house where the Christians were worshipping. No church, no sanctuary was built until the 4th century when Constantine became a Christian. And his mother, who was already a Christian and had been praying for him, with the wealth that was hers in the Roman Empire, built churches on all the old sites where Jesus had done his miracles. And one was built over Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus. And it's still there. It did not get destroyed a couple of centuries later because when the Persians came in to destroy it, they saw people who looked just like themselves in these huge murals and they left that building stand. It's one of the most ancient churches for that very reason. Another interesting factor is this, that Marco Polo, the great adventurer who made his way to the Far East in passing through Persia, recorded in his writings going to a village where they claimed the Magi came from to find Jesus. Very interesting little footnote in Marco Polo's, Polo's journeys. So that's why the building stands. But another amazing factor in this is that the Magi were Gentiles. Now you remember that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 1, where you've got the lineage of Mary and Joseph, well, of Joseph and Jesus, you've got that lineage there, that there were three of four women who were Gentiles who were mentioned. Quite amazing. Now you've got Gentiles coming to worship Jesus. And clearly the message keeps being reiterated in the book of Matthew, which is written to reach Jews. That the Gentiles are included in the family of God as they come to faith in Jesus. And we actually are regarded as children of Abraham because of our faith in Jesus. Remarkable little vignette in the middle of all this because these who came to worship Jesus with their gifts came from Persia and were Gentiles. So the reason we are included without having to become Jews in order to be real Christians, is because God came and did away with all the rules and regulations of the ceremonial law so that we Gentiles coming in could become followers of Jesus 
without having to buy into the bondage of all the Jewish customary rules and regulations. The gifts that the Magi brought were gold, incense, and myrrh. Highly symbolic. They came looking for a king, remember. And they actually went to Jerusalem because they wanted to find a king. That was the headquarters, the capital, Jerusalem. Well, word gets to Herod and he entertains them and is really disturbed. He was really a paranoid king. He had killed a couple of his sons just so that they couldn't want their throne before it was his, their time. He was an ogre of a man. So now they turn up saying, where's he who's born to be king? Well, the paranoia of Herod exhibited in this is that after they found out where to go, to Bethlehem, because he called in the elites, the religious rulers and the interpreters of the word of God, and they could have told him from memory. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The Messiah is to be born. This king is to be born in Bethlehem. Herod tells the Magi, but he gives this little sequel. When you have been there and worshipped him, let me know, so that I too may go and worship him. Well, he had no, no desire at all to worship. He was after destroying Jesus. So the Magi get the message, having visited Jesus, to return by some other route than going through Jerusalem. Jesus becomes the first refugee of the Messianic age. Because the angels come and tell Mary and Joseph, get out of town. Take the baby with you. His life is going to be sought. And they made their way to Egypt. So Jesus becomes a refugee with Mary and Joseph, fleeing the terror of Herod, who then sends troops to slaughter the little ones of Bethlehem. Ugly, miserable, wicked scene in the middle of what is joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive a king. That's always the case when righteousness rises up. When God reveals himself. You become a believer and start talking about it, you're going to run into opposition. It's an amazing thing. I've had young people who came to exciting faith when I was back in the youth ministry days and they'd go home and tell their parents that they have asked Jesus into their life and the parents were not happy about it. They thought their kids had become fanatics of some sort or another and they actually opposed them being involved with Jesus. I sensed the same thing when I went home. Having become a believer, I went and told my mother And I thought she'd be excited that this teenage boy had come to believe in Jesus because now I might sort of fly straight. And she was not happy at all. I got the cold shoulder about it. She was not the least bit interested. 
And I was deeply, I remember it to this day, deeply disappointed. I was excited, and she gave me the stone face of rejection about that issue. It happens where you work, where your kids go to school, in the neighborhood. And much of what political correctness is today is to drive out the knowledge of Jesus from the marketplace so that you're not supposed to speak of him or pray to him. And you hear of these horrendous situations in schools or in football teams. It's constantly in the news. I don't know if you get that news. But the rejection of Jesus. And the issue will be for us even more so as time unfolds. This blatant manifestation of the rejection of Jesus when you let others know that you live for him and you walk in his righteousness as best you can and want others to come to know him. That's what happened in Bethlehem. Truth of the matter and a reality is that whenever God really manifests himself, there is a huge reaction of rejection. Not all welcome that news joyfully. So with the gifts that the Magi present, gold, incense, and myrrh, is the symbolism in the first place with the gold, remember they were looking for a king, with the gold that it represented his kingship, his being the king. And they presented the gift of gold worthy of a king. It was a major sacrificial gift. No less so than the incense. These are three expensive gifts in their day, in their time. But the incense represented sacrificial offering. The priestly offering. Jesus is our great high priest. But he didn't offer a lamb or an ox or a pigeon sacrificially. He offered himself. So already is the undertone of suffering along with the majesty of sovereignty. Yes, a king. But there's a sacrifice to be offered. And I do say to you, as you walk out of the church... And look left, as you get to the back of this church, if you look left, the doors open all the way into a chapel. And there in that chapel is a lonely, stark feeding trough with hay instead of a handsome Lord's table, just a feeding trough with hay and a baby doll in the hay. Stark and simple, just like the one you passed as you came in through the doors to worship. Stark and simple. But next to that feeding trough, that manger, are some candles. And at the foot of the stand of the candles, in the greenery, is a thorn crown. The joy of his birth, but the sacrificial death. 
he became the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, born to be our Savior via that ugly death upon the cross. Represented in that sacrificial mystery of the incense rising to God. And thirdly, the myrrh is bespeaking the death of Jesus, that he really did die, that he really was buried as if dead. And you'll remember when the women were going to the tomb, they were going to finish the embalming of Jesus. And one of the things they do is to wrap into the grave clothes myrrh, very expensive ointment. And that speaks of his death and burial. Three days in the grave before the resurrection. Amazingly, I would say that this was like the people having no clue that that census was instituted by God to get his son to be born while still in the womb from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy of Micah. That he would be born into the house of David. No less so that these kings would bring these gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. I would think maybe unwittingly. It's hard to know because they were Gentiles. They were pagan soothsayers. And God had condescended to use their mysterious ways to become his amazing way to lead them to Jesus. And it's amazing how many circumstances of this world unwittingly lead us to Jesus. I always had the sense when they were trying to teach me in science that we got here by accident that that was rubbish. I knew it. It wasn't that I was religious. My own common sense said, how can you get to what we are by accident? The nervous system is amazing. Look at me, I'm moving my fingers. Do you know you can take a hair off your head, some of you, and (laughs) touch your finger with the tip of that hair And because of the nervous system and the almost amazing finiteness of the nervous system, you can take that hair from your head, touch your finger, and feel it. The tip of the hair. And it tells your brain. So there's a connection between that minute little spot on your finger and your brain down a whole amazing nervous system. And you got there by accident? I don't want to go on and on and on, but it's astounding. 
And common sense said, there has to be a creator, otherwise this life is meaningless. Why am I searching for meaning? Why am I trying to make sense of life? And unwittingly, the world is taking me to the Lord. Because I knew that there had to be a God because of the amazing creation of which I was a part and the longing I had to know sense and meaning and purpose with this life. Just one of those little, almost amazing incidents, because I remember the time when I went through that series of thoughts of God taking secular teaching and leading me to himself out of plain common sense and reason. Whether the wise men knew it or not, they were declaring Jesus to be a king and a sacrifice and one who would really die for the sins of the world. Pay that price. The mounting evidence of Scripture is overwhelmingly authoritative to anybody who is willing to think and assess the realities that it describes that Jesus is who he said he was. That he and the Father are one. That he came to save sinners and rescue them. That he is the Savior of the world. I want to take you back to a Christmas and close with this. A Christmas when I had just moved with my family to London. We moved from Oxford, which was a quaint little town by comparison, especially in those days, 1954, to London, which was the big city and still is. And I had relatives in London, and the idea of going to live in London with the bright lights and all the cool young adults and all the bright, shiny shops was very attractive. But I remember my first Christmas in London, had next to no friends, and I'm walking by the shops that are all brightly lit, suggesting joy and happiness and spend your money. One shop after another along the street where I lived, near where I lived, Wood Street in Walthamstow, brightly lit shops people out shopping, all the images of Christmases gone by, but I myself, as lonely as could be, walking by, looking at the lights, and the brighter the exhibition, the lonelier I felt. The more joy and energy on the streets, the more isolated I felt longing to be loved, longing for something more than just what looked even then to me like the hollow shell of glitz and glamour. 
And then I remember a Christmas after I came to faith in Jesus, my first Christian Christmas. And what a difference to be in church singing carols, to come to the Lord's table and worship, to enter into the intimacy and the joy and the fellowship that I had with God knowing that he so loved me that he sent Jesus to be my Savior so that I could be forgiven and that he could come and dwell in me and fill me with himself, no longer isolated, no longer alone, no longer dependent on the circumstances around me to give me some sense of worth and joy. The joy was within me. Jesus had taken possession of me. I was his, and he was mine. And when we said, as we say in England, not Merry Christmas, but Happy Christmas, just one of those little nuances. I, in hearing Happy Christmas, knew what the happiness of Christmas was. It was Jesus. My Lord, my Savior, my friend. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord Jesus, we call you Lord because you are the sovereign King. And we thank you for that immense journey where you left heaven in glory and came to earth and became one of us, a weak, dependent infant. Thank you for your great humility. And thank you that in that journey you really had come all the way to where we were and become what we were, that you might rescue us and take us home to be with you from being immortal to eternal in joy and happiness with you forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. So for each of us, with the threat of illness, the loneliness that some of us endure, for the one or two who were even hesitant to come to church and sing carols just because they're having a blue Christmas. Meet each of us, Lord, in our own particular need and lift our spirits. May the joy that you brought to the world you bring to our hearts and minds and homes. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.